0: Lord we pray that your grace may always precede and follow us that we may continually be given to good works through Jesus Christ our Lord who lives and reigns with you in the holy spirit one god now and forever amen that's the collect appointed for today October the 10th 2021 you're listening to faith seeking understanding and i'm your host john green thanks for being along today it's been kind of a i don't know crazy sort of week here. It's rained every single day (laughs) leading up to the weekend, so it's been that kind of a week. Fortunately, we've had enough breaks in the weather that we've been able to get out and walk at least, you know, several miles a day and all that kind of stuff, but other than that, it's been sort of a dreary kind of a week, but it's okay. I got a lot done, so that makes it redeemed at least that i got a lot done but nothing exciting going on we're still waiting to hear about a neurologist uh, to see will about the seizures that he's having we he does have an appointment finally with uh neurology at duke in january <laughs> hopefully we can get in somewhere sooner than that um but other than that just kind of a, a whatever sort of a week i, I just felt felt like the, the week kind of slipped away even though i'd stayed busy and all that so anyway but at any rate things are well and um Mostly, I don't have any complaints <laughs> about the week. I'm kind of ready for fall to be here, ready to see the changes in the weather and changes in the leaves and all that kind of stuff. Um, it's it's time. It feels like uh, for that to happen. Hopefully, the where you are, the um, COVID numbers are coming down. They are here, so that's good news, obviously. Um, but. But beyond that, it's just, like I said, been kind of one of those weeks. I feel like I've been able to spend a lot of time in the Word and got some new things going on. Got, you know, you're going to start having gathering a group of people every Wednesday or every other Wednesday for the time being. Just kind of try out some new things. There's some new teaching I'd like to do and like to focus in on a book or whatever. If you've got any suggestions, by the way, about what I could, um, what you'd like to hear me talk about, then please put suggestions in. Send me notifications through through the app. Uh, send them to the Facebook page at Faith Seeking Understanding, and uh, it'll be the the link is there here with the podcast. So, um, yeah, anything you want to, me to talk about, shoot it out there, and then I'll begin to kick it around with the folks that I'm gathering, and we'll see how it goes. I'm excited about that. It's like I said, it's been. I'm excited to to have something kind of new on the horizon, something new moving forward, and it's one of the things that that I always feel like I have to do <laughs> is to keep moving forward. You know, even at sixty the the goal is to always be continually looking forward and going towards something new and i encourage you to do the same thing take up a new habit take up a new uh interest or whatever and and just try something out give it a shot um i didn't start really lifting weights at all until i was 50 years old and now i'm i if i wanted to go compete in powerlifting i could win most of the time around here at least Um, so, and I enjoy it and I get to know a lot of people and get to share the gospel with people, get to do all kinds of things at the gym. And so, um, and if you don't, aren't aware of this, it's actually one of the strangest things you'll find is it's one of the most affirming places you'll ever go. People will tell you when you're looking better, when you're working hard, all that kind of stuff. So, but at any rate, um, it's, yeah. So my encouragement to you right now is to, to have the courage to try something new whatever that means in your life, but have the courage to step up and do that. Um, most of what I'm going to talk about today has to do with courage, actually. I'm going to talk some about um, a couple of philosophers, actually, <laughs> uh, who, who don't parallel each other, but they had the same vision. And and they, you can call them both prophetic in their own way. And the two people I'm going to talk about are, are going to be Friedrich Nietzsche and Alexander Solzhenitsyn. And so... I want to read some of Solzhenitsyn's address that he gave to Harvard that um, uh, certainly didn't bless most of the people who were gathered there. And then also to talk a little bit about Nietzsche's uh, idea of the ubermensch, the overman, who would um, hopefully in his mind replace um, the, the tired old man who had been, uh, who he saw coming. Um, and, and that would have deeply influenced then Ayn Rand and objectivist philosophy, um, because it was all based on humanism. It all sets the human at the center of philosophy. While Solzhenitsyn comes at it from a totally different perspective, he comes at it from a Christian perspective, looking at man and providing a prophetic warning for human beings um, that, that we were moving in a dangerous direction. And so I want to talk about that some today, but begin with Job, actually, the book of Job, uh, the first nine verses of uh, chapter 23, and then also the 16th and the 17th verses of that um, book. And so it's an interesting thing. You can juxtapose it with Psalm 139 uh, in a lot of ways. And and, and at the end of the reading of it, I'll I'll kind of reflect on that a little bit of what I'm saying there. So Job answers his friends who have come to sort comfort him uh, was the primary reason they were there, but they were also there to accuse him because you've probably heard me say this before that that we're looking at default theology here and the default theology is actually not Christian nor Judeo-Christian, it's karma, right? So what the reason I say that is that that job's default theology is none of this should have happened to me because I did all the right things. right? So so I believe that I did all the right things and because I did all the right things, then all the right things should happen to me as well. And then the friends come and they're they're saying, Job, you must have some hidden sin. That brought this into your life, all this calamity into your life where you lose your family, you lose all your possessions, and you've lost your health. So you must have done something wrong. There's got to be a one-to-one correspondence, like karmic correspondence, between done something wrong and what's happened to you. And and it's the default theology that everybody goes to, and I've heard it way too many times, and I've thought it way too many times. But the reality is, is that, you know, I had to preach a sermon at a funeral about 10 years ago now— it was a young man. He was 24 years old and, and died. And, and there, we're not exactly sure what happened there, even though there was an autopsy. It's not clear exactly what had happened. Um, and so people are, are quick to form their own opinions about those things. And as we were headed to the funeral, I was driving. It was about an hour away. And I told Suzanne, I need you to drive um, because I thought I had planned what I was going to say, but God's telling me to say something else. And so when I got there, what I explained was is that i began looking at 700 people most of whom were under the age of 25 and said so how many of you here today if you were in charge you were creating a world would create a world where uh, it was possible for a 24 year old man to die not a single person not surprisingly raised their hand right so i'm sitting there looking at these people and i said so here's what i want you to understand i I want you to understand that that nobody would and nobody did That was not the world God created. God created a perfect world where these kinds of things wouldn't happen, and he promises that in the future, in the recapitulation, in the new creation, then we will see that world, that world that we all know to be the right world. But the Bible, um, apart from every other creation story you'll ever read, tells the story about why the world is the way that it is, and it cites the problem in exactly the right place. It's with us. We brought sin into the world, and when we did, we brought all this other mess into the world. And the sin that we continue to have in our own lives, as Christians or non-Christians, continues to compound the problem. It's it's almost a miracle that the world is not worse than it is. God's grace is the only reason that the world isn't worse than it is. And so, the, but ultimately, what the Bible tells is the story of what will be, and that's kind of what job is getting at in the answer that he's giving here to his friends he's protesting his innocence and so he he knows that he's innocent and he's not guilty of any sin they're equally certain (laughs) that he is so here's his response today also my complaint is bitter my hand is heavy on account of my groaning it's he's He's tired. He's worn out with all this. Oh, that I knew where I might find him, God, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. Could he contend with me in the greatness of his power? No, he would pay attention to me. There an upright man could argue with him and I would be acquitted forever by my judge. Behold, I go forward, but he's not there and backward, but I don't perceive him. On the left hand, where he's working, I don't behold him. He turns to the right hand, but I don't see him. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I'm not silenced because of the darkness, nor because thick darkness covers my face. So what Job is saying is, is that I, I, what I really want, what I want more than anything else, is to be able to stand before God and to protest my innocence in all of this. And, and I would want him to recognize my innocence that I didn't deserve, quote unquote, any of this. This should never have happened to me. But he says, I can't find him. God's silent. He's hiding from me. And I'm sure everybody that's listening to this has, has felt that emotion before in your life. You felt like things had spun completely out of control. And your question was, where is God? Where is he? I don't have any idea. I can't find him anywhere. I feel bereft and alone. I feel like there's nobody in the universe who will hear my side of things, who, who will understand me. But, but Job protests, not just at not being able to find God, but he believes that if he could put his case before God, that God would be forced to admit, yes, he's right. He is a blameless man. And what we know from the beginning of the book of Job is, is that God said that that he was a blameless and upright man. That's what he said to Satan. And so we know that that's who Job is, but, and, and that, but that's not the issue. The, the issue is not karma. The issue is God still needs Job to know something because Job's theology is as messed up as his friend's theology is. And so God needs to show him something different. He needs to learn something that can only be learned by going through the hardship and by continuing to be in dialogue with God. Because God ultimately does show up, and he gives Job an answer, but it's not an answer to his question. It's really just the answer is, I'm here, Job. I see, I know, I understand, I love you, and it matters. It, Job receives it. Job did understand what God said, but what he does first is to say, I repent in dust and ashes, for I I, I come as a man who has no idea what he's talking about. I was wrong. I believed that I had understanding, but I didn't. But, But he says that he can't find God. But he ultimately says that I know that my Redeemer lives, and in the end he'll stand upon the earth, and in my eyes I will see God. So he believed in a Redeemer. He believed that ultimately there is this thing called justice. And he was going to pursue justice, no matter what it took. And he was proclaiming the truth, in spite of the fact that nobody could see it, because they believed this other thing. But God needed to correct Job's theology, and he needed Job to understand what it means to live in the real world, not a world that's protected from all harm, because you believe in God, but, but a, the world that is. Job needed to have his eyes opened to see that that... Yes, you love me, and yes, you keep all my commandments, but that's honestly not enough. I need you to have your eyes open, Job. I need to have your eyes open to the suffering in the world around you and to see that, that this world is not a world of justice. That's not what happens here. In, in that recapitulation, the, the recreation of all things, that's when the world you believe in will be. And that's the thing that we need to hear, but to say that that I can't find God and that's on us in so many ways, it because we we've, we've moved away from him, and then sometimes it's in God's silence when we're crying out and crying out and crying out and God's silent. and there's no response from him that we come to that place of desperation, but at the same time, the we, we find our feet if we're not defeated, then we find our footing under us, and we begin to to believe. And we begin to long for the coming of God's kingdom, where things are right and where things are just. But, but his experience and our experience can be the same thing, and then you see the opposite of that in uh, Psalm 139. You mark when I go out and when I lie down, all my ways are open to you. You enfold me from in front and from behind, and you place your hand upon me. Your knowledge is beyond my comprehension, far too sublime for me to attain. Where can I go to hide from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to the heavens, you're there. If I take my rest in the netherworld, you're also there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle at the farthest limits of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me, and your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, "Surely the darkness will conceal me, and the day around me will not turn to night," will turn to night. Even the darkness is not dark to you; the night is as bright as the day, for to you darkness and light are the same. Job, at this point in the argument in his life, doesn't see that, doesn't experience that truth, and therefore he he calls out, but he finds his feet to say. God has made my heart faint. The Almighty has terrified me. Yet I am not silenced because of the darkness, not because thick darkness covers my face. No. I'm going to continue to cry out even in the darkness. I don't care because I know what's true. And so he continues to cry out, and, and, and we're not accusing God. Job's not accusing God. He, he's at some level kind of accusing him of being unjust, and he, he's really crying out against, the world is not as I believed it to be. And God's response is, you're right, Job. You're right. Nor is it the world that I wanted it to be. And we've got to have the courage to stand up and talk to God in the same way that Job does, is to plead our case before him. Not because we lack an advocate, but Jesus, because Jesus is our advocate there. But, but God wants us to be in dialogue with him, no matter what that sounds like and what that looks like. We need not be afraid that, that God can't handle our emotions and can't handle our doubts. That's, that's not right at all for us to believe that we need to continue to cry out to him no matter what. And, and that requires courage to be able to do that it requires us to notice injustice not just when it occurs in our lives but when it occurs for other people and he wants us to cry out for justice for the world in the same way that that he's asking us to cry out for justice in our own lives and so we're called to intercede then we're called to those virtues of the beatitudes um, mourning weeping suffering And, and jesus says that here in this gospel lesson too As he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up before him and knelt and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. And that's something we really, really, really need to remember. The definition of good is exactly as it ought to be. And God's the only one who qualifies for that definition. And so when when we think of, Oh, that's a good man. God will surely let him in even if he doesn't believe. Well, he's not a good man. Because he doesn't believe in God. Let's start there. And he's not exactly as he ought to be. I remember a few years ago, Pope Francis, who is certainly not my ideal, um, was speaking to an atheist journalist, and and he asked him, so what's your message to somebody like me who's not a believer? How do you get to things like God and sin and redemption? He said, have you always obeyed your conscience in every single instance? The man said, no. And he said, well, there you go. That's sin. That's sin your conscience was telling you to do the right thing, and you rebelled against what your conscience told you to do. And so what he did was he convicted him of sin even on his own terms. It's a, it's a beautiful thing, but, it, but it's to say you might think of yourself as a good man, but the reality is you didn't obey your conscience in this one instance at least. So what are you going to do with that? So the, the idea of good just got destroyed, completely wrapped up and, and, and dumped in a little package right there in that one question. So good, again, only applies to God. That's exactly what Jesus says. You know the commandments. He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness, don't defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, I've kept all these things from my youth. Do you notice what Jesus did here he did the same thing here that he kind of does with John the Baptist's um, disciples when they come to him and ask him, are you the one, or, or should we look for somebody else? And Jesus lists all these things that the Messiah is going to do in Isaiah 62, and, but he leaves out setting the prisoners free, which is exactly what they wanted to hear him say he was going to do, was release John from prison, but he left that out. And so here what he does is he leaves out sort of the most important thing, right, because what he does is he talks about all these duties that the Ten Commandments set up that have to do with interpersonal relationships, and he's kind of working backwards through the Ten Commandments. But then he stops with honor your father and mother. He doesn't actually go to love the Lord your God. He doesn't go to say what's most important to you um, needs to start with God and then flow outward to your fellow man, which is what Jesus says: love the Lord your God heart, soul. All your heart, soul, strength, and mind, as, and your neighbor as yourself, and so it begins with God. But but Jesus doesn't list any of the commandments that had to do with the way that we're to love God. And the guy says, "I've done all those things. I've never done that. I've never stolen. I've never murdered. I've never committed adultery. I've not borne false witness. I've not defrauded anybody, and I've honored my mother and father. I've done all those things." But Jesus doesn't even he isn't even point him in that in the direction. But then so then he answers him and says, um. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing, go, sell all that you have, and give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. Jesus invited him to become a, a disciple, but the terms were not acceptable. He was disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. What he had done is he would set all those things above God. He, he set comfort and safety above everything else. It, it was It was vulnerability to give all that up to go follow God. He he had he wanted to know what he had to do to inherit eternal life. Well, what did he do to get what he had? Well, he inherited that. And so how do I get eternal life? How do, what do I have to do to inherit that? Well, you know what the law of inheritance would say, right? Somebody got to die. That will doesn't kick in. and You don't inherit anything until the person who possesses it dies. And, and that's the law of inheritance of eternal life as well. But this this possessions thing, this comfort and security, is what prevents him from being able to share in that. And and this gets us to the whole Nietzsche thing from uh, *Thus Spake Zarathustra*. He, he the ideal that Nietzsche sets up is this Überman, the Übermensch, the Overman, The the guy who who grasps life and, and then beats it down. He looks god in the eye and denies god has any power over him at all but then he um sees his life he, he does carpe diem completely and, and seeks to sort of um maximize his potential as a human being but the reality is is that enough ultimately let's say that somebody even does accomplish such a thing as being the ubermensch and there are a lot of people who would pretend to and who will call us to that way of life that's exactly what Ann Rand was trying to call people to was that life of overcoming the world by not caring about the world. Ultimately, you do care about the world and you care about it by maximizing your own potential, which means that you can provide things for the world and but but it's a result of your own labor and you owe no man anything. and so what Nietzsche says is there's that person, and then Ann Rand fleshes that in her books. But then what you've got first is, is the prologue to Zarathustra. And what you see there is something called the last man who's tired of life, takes no risks, and seeks only comfort and security. And, and Nietzsche saw that, that that's the last goal of society because suddenly there's no metaphysics. There's no um, existential thing to think about. So existential things become climate change. Existential things become COVID or whatever. It's because we've lost any sense of the transcendent and the eternal. And so the goal of life and the meaning of life is now suddenly something I have to come up with on my own. And that has to be the maximization of the potential that's within me. And then the encouragement to others to do the same, both in my words, but also in my commitments. You should see that. You should want to become the same thing. So... After the ubermensch comes, Zarathustra um, tries to get the population to accept the ubermensch as the goal of society, because the society doesn't have a goal outside of metaphysics, outside of God. So Zarathustra confronts them with a goal so disgusting, he assumes it'll revolt them. The lives of the last men are just simply pacifist and comfortable. There's no longer a distinction between ruler and ruled, strong over weak, or supreme over the mediocre. Social conflict and challenges get minimized, and then every individual lives equally and in superficial harmony. Does that sound actually like the goal that's expressed today in government? That's exactly what one set of people believe should be the future, is is that we're we're trying to make sure that everybody kind of lives equally and in social harmony. Uh, but the only way to do that is to destroy those people who are not uh, in that same place. So it, there, there's a justice issue there in pursuing justice for the weak and the disadvantaged and all that kind of stuff. And I'm not disagreeing that there's an issue to be talked about there. But what I'm saying is, is that that what are we? Why are we seeking that? What is it we're seeking? And so the the, the antithesis of that is not the Ubermensch, but it's the same problem that um, Solzhenitsyn saw and expressed in, in a, that address that he made to Harvard. And I'm going to read a port, two paragraphs of that to you. He says, Every citizen has been granted the desired freedom and material goods in such quantity and of such quality as to guarantee, in theory, the achievement of happiness in the morally inferior sense of the word which has come into being during those same decades. In the process, however, one psychological detail has been overlooked, the constant desire to have still more things and a still better life and the struggle to attain them imprint many Western faces with worry and even depression. Active, intense competition fills all human thoughts without opening a way to free spiritual development. We've forgotten the spiritual part of life. We've made ourselves the material part of life. This this young man who comes to Jesus is happy and content with what he has. It would be nice to have eternal life as well and to have that in your back pocket, but he was content with what he had, and so he wasn't willing to give that up. He didn't see the treasure That he was giving up by hanging on to that, because he he didn't have spiritual eyes, he had only materialistic eyes. And then uh, Solzhenitsyn goes on to say, I've spent all my life under a communist regime, and I'll tell you that a society without any objective legal scale is a terrible one indeed, but a society with no other scale than a legal one is not quite worthy of man either. A society based on the letter of the law and never reaches any higher is taking very scarce advantage of the high level of human possibilities. And so it's, you could sound like, okay, he's, he's, he's reaching towards the ubermensch to, to the maximization of human potential, and there's, there's nothing wrong with that. But why is the serious and, and, and only serious question for that? He says, whenever the tissue of life is woven of legalistic relations, there's an atmosphere of moral mediocrity. He said people are going to push that boundary to the edge of the boundary and live within that wider boundary that they've created rather than than feeling cramped in any way. It paralyzes, he says, man's noblest impulses, and it will be simply impossible to stand through the trials of this threatening century with only the support of a legalistic structure. And that's the thing. That, that I think is paralyzing to us. We, 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 we work to the bounds of what we can do and what's allowed under the law, and then we just stop there. Jesus goes on with this thing, and he's talking to the disciples now and, and said how difficult it'll be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words because they believed that same theology that Job believed, right? That, that if you do all the right things, then you'll receive all the right stuff in this world, and Jesus has already spoken about that. Stop worrying about those things. That's Matthew 6. And then here, though, that they associate blessing with the wealth that these people have. Well, that sounds like a familiar theme in the American church today, but it's not just America. We've exported that same theology all over the world, and we're ruining lives because of it. But Jesus said to them, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, it's impossible. <laughs> and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? What's the point of any of this if nobody's going to be saved? Why are we even signing up? What are, we, what are we doing? What's the point? Oh my gosh, it's hopeless. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it's impossible, not with God, for all things are possible with God. And Peter, of course, began to say to him, see, we've left everything and followed you. What he's saying is, is that so what are we going to get? We gave up everything to follow you. What's the payoff? Jesus says, truly I say to you, there's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first and it's the what what he's telling there the story he's telling there and the summary judgment on it is the same thing the same idea that his mother expressed when she was uh, when she goes and meets her uh cousin elizabeth and and then the the child in the womb and it is a child in the womb John leaps for joy and and then Mary bursts into the Magnificat um, and her beautiful uh, soliloquy that she gives there uh, that we say as part of our services on a pretty regular basis. And so she talks about the reversal of all things. Um, my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he's looked on f- with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Henceforth, all generations will call me blessed. And then she goes on down. He has shown the strength of his arm. He has routed those who are arrogant in the desires of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich empty away. It's a powerful statement of reversal of fortune. But Jesus's point is not literally not to say you're going to get wildly wealthy in this. I, I've experienced this same thing, you know, having been around and been in different places. I'm welcome in a lot of different places in this world because of Jesus. doesn't mean I possess those homes. It doesn't mean those people are literally, in in the worldly sense, my father and mother and brothers and all that, but, but God has given me people all along the way who have carried out those roles in my lives, life because I was following him, and so I was welcome in all these places and we can go to the beach and we can have a house and it doesn't belong to us, but somebody's giving it to us because they love us because we love the Lord. And so there's all these other things that, that Jesus is talking about here that, we, that our lives will be filled with good things, but that's not the same as owning those things or being owned by those things. It, it's not a, a, a health and wealth gospel that Jesus is preaching and then everybody wants to leave out. Well, also he says in there with persecutions, by the way. And that we need that in our lives. We we actually need difficult times in our lives for multiple reasons. One is we're going to grow in faith and love towards him. And the second is it opens us up to the suffering around us as well. We begin to see other people who are suffering. We we join the fellowship of the suffering, which is to say we join the fellowship of the world, that we grieve for the world and we, we want the same that we have, the same peace and the same confidence we have for others and that's the the impelling within us to tell them the gospel and to give an accounting of the hope that lies within us because we live in a world without hope and so when people see somebody who has hope and who has confidence in spite of the circumstances then they're drawn to that because they know they don't possess that strength that comes from that and so the the ubermensch Ultimately, in Christianity, is the one who bows the knee before Jesus and said, I need you desperately. I see a world that is not as it should be, and I long for the world that will be, because I believe that it will be exactly the way I believe it should be. In the Hebrews passage today, it, this is Hebrews 4:12 to 16, "...for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart." Well, again, we'll go back to the disciples' reaction to Jesus saying that uh, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God, and and then their response was, rightly so. Well, then, who can be saved? And and that's the point of the piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart, is to say God knows all these things about us, and then we should cry out from there, then who can be saved? If the Word of God knows all these things— then who in the world could be saved? Because not a single one of us is worthy. There is no good man. Even Job, who was blameless and upright, was not a good man in the same sense because he wasn't perfect. He had a flawed version and vision of God. And so that's going to distort the way you live and the reason that you do good works. Because you're expecting to get something for that and you're expecting to not receive bad things because of that. Jesus says you're going to have all these things, but you're also going to have persecutions. It's not going to be perfect and easy. You don't live in that world yet. And so in in this Hebrews passage, the first thing it does is convict us all of sin. It tells us, no, 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 no. You can't think of yourself as a, quote, good person because this sword of, of the Spirit is going to tear all that to shreds for you, and it's going to expose you for what you are, which is a sinful human being. But then he goes on to say... Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confessions. For we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who has in every respect been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in other words, there is a perfect man, there is an ubermensch in the sense of overcoming the world, and that's Jesus. He passed through this world without sinning. And then the rest of that is, and how did that work out for him? Right? We put him on a cross, and we crucified him after we had beaten him, after we had mocked him, spit on him, shoved a crown of thorns on his head. Yeah, Then, now, we'll crucify him. We'll make his life a living hell as long as we can, and then we'll let him die. And he faced persecutions all the time. And then Paul faced persecutions, and the disciples faced persecutions, and maybe we ought to be prepared for that. Truth-telling is not easy, but, but Jesus passed through all these things, and, and, but he has sympathy for us because he has lived among us. He knows what this world is. He, he came into it with eyes wide open and says there's no justice here. I'm not, I'm not coming to make sure the world is just place after this. It is undoubtedly a better place because Jesus came. So even in this world, there's more justice than there would be because his people live in this world and administer that justice in many cases. But Jesus suffered at the hands of an unjust world. He did nothing to deserve this. And yet, even then, he doesn't pass through that heavenly place and leave us bereft. No, he He intercedes for us because he sympathizes with our weaknesses because he knows what it is and he knows how difficult this life is. And then he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Which is exactly the way that Job wants to approach the throne. Except he wants to come there with his own righteousness. And ultimately what he has to find out is, I really don't have the righteousness that I thought I had. I don't have what I thought I have, and I'm not the man that I thought I was. Now that I stand before God, I see something totally different, and in light of that, I don't have goodness to offer. All I have to do is offer thanks and praise and glory and honor to Him, because He alone is worthy. And He loves us so much that He sent His Son to come into an unjust world And to show us that there's eternal life and that the world we all dream of and believe in will be. And if we put our hope and faith and trust in the one good man who ever lived, then we'll join him in that eternal life and share in his glory.